Hello, my name is Dan Sarushi. I'm Professor of Public International Law at the University of Oxford, and I'm going to be discussing international organisations and state sovereignty. So this lecture will address the concept of sovereignty within the context of international organisations from a particular philosophical perspective. And as such, my lecture is heavily theoretical, although I shall, where possible, uh, strive to demonstrate the practical relevance and importance of my theoretical discussion. The link between sovereignty, most recently considered as being within the province of states, i.e. state sovereignty, and international organisations is important today precisely because many international organisations such as, for example, the WTO, the World Trade Organisation, the European Union, and indeed the UN Security Council exercise uh, what can be characterised as sovereign powers. My lecture today will first consider uh, a, a useful conception of sovereignty and um, I'll then discuss this concept of particular concept of sovereignty within international organisations. The meaning of sovereignty is largely contingent upon the text in which it figures. There's no objective concept that's universally applicable, and yet it's, found, it's of foundational importance to the concept of a state and indeed of modern political knowledge. Much of the literature on sovereignty in international legal journals has been devoted to discussing the relationship between sovereignty and international law and organisations and the limitations that are said to flow therefrom for the exercise by the sovereign state of its powers within and external to its territory. The approach I will adopt today is, is different. I want to borrow today from the philosophy of language, in particular what is referred to as an essentially contestable concept, since in my view sovereignty is, is such an essentially contestable concept. Now what does this mean? The precise meaning and scope of the application of sovereignty in different contexts remains unclear, in addition to concepts of domestic sovereignty, interdependent sovereignty, international legal sovereignty and Westphalian sovereignty, the concept of sovereignty, and here I'm talking about sovereignty as the ultimate and supreme power of decision, can be analysed from the perspective of what can be called its contestable elements, such elements as legal versus political sovereignty, external versus internal sovereignty, indivisible versus divisible sovereignty, and indeed governmental versus popular sovereignty. These elements of sovereignty have always been contested throughout history, and the outcome of these contests at a particular point in time have given us meaning at any point in time as to what constitutes sovereignty. However, the specific locus of decision-making resulting from these contestations through history is secondary, I claim, to the importance of the essentially contestable character of sovereignty. I'm using here the concept from the philosophy of language, as I mentioned. And an essentially contestable concept is one that not only expresses a normative standard or expresses or contains in its expression one or more values, but whose conceptions differ from one person to the other and whose correct application of these values that make up the concept is precisely to create disagreement over its correct application. Now that's circular on purpose. In other words, um, there's continual contestation or debate over what the concept itself is. So not only uh, are the definitional elements of the concept to be contested, that is the types of things I was discussing, is it legal, political, Westphalian 
versus political uh, versus uh, sorry governmental versus popular and so on but also um, the applications of these elements uh, are contested so that the core criteria of the concept of sovereignty are constantly being tested and redefined and contested by states, by individuals, by multinational corporations, uh, by international organizations. And this, in my view, is central to sovereignty's contribution, that the very existence of the concept of sovereignty generates arguments as to its core criteria. So that leads to a, lot, a number of important questions. For example, are there conditions for the existence and application of sovereignty? Who should exercise sovereignty? What form should these entities take? What values should, these, uh, these, uh, should, should they seek to promote in the exercise of sovereignty? And how are these values to be reconciled in the case of conflict? Does the application of these values provide a means for, the, for determining the allocation of decision-making power between the local, national and international planes? These are just some of the questions that the essentially contestable nature of sovereignty raise and will continue to raise. And as such, the concept of sovereignty assists in the continual redefini redefinition by societies and states of who or what they are. And in addition, it identifies and even promotes loyalty to new forms of political, social and legal forms as they emerge. In fact, the most recent example of this is international organisations, of course. And this understanding of the concept's role provides a, a, an important or cogent counter-argument against those, for example, the late and great Professor Neil McCormack, who advocate its ab abolition. An important element of an essentially contestable concept is that its contestation proceeds by a process of imitation and adaptation from what's called an exemplar. This is important since it provides a constant touchstone for the essentially con contested concept um, to go back to the reason for the concept's existence. Or as Jeremy Waldron, um, my, my colleague in Oxford, argues, back to the problem that the concept was in the first place invented to try and solve. This doesn't in any way detract from the dynamic and lively contestation of the core criteria that arguably make up a complex uh, concept like sovereignty. But the identification of the central issue, in other words, that the exemplar, the central issue, does provide a general conceptual framework within which these contestations can take place. And it also provides a basis for distinguishing the relevant from the irrelevant during these processes of contestation. So what then is the central problem of sovereignty about which there's con continued contestation? Well, in my view, it's the following. What are the powers reserved to government? Who exercises which of these powers? And how should they be exercised? As such, the contours of the conceptual framework generated by this core problem clearly allow us to speak of the concept of sovereignty within the context of international organisations exercising conferred powers of government. Now, an obvious exemplar in the case of contestations of sovereignty within international organisations is the nation-state. Instead, however, of characterising the nation-state as an exemplar, it may be more accurate to describe it as being a reference point since it doesn't provide the desired endpoint, but rather the starting point for the contestation of sovereignty within international organizations. The contestation of sovereignty um, has always moved to a higher, more transcendent level of human institution. It started out 
from the family unit to the tribe, moving from the family unit to the tribe, to the city-state, to the region, to the uh, institution of independent and sovereign states, nation-states, and now finally to international organizations. The initial content of the concept of sovereignty to be contested at each new higher level has usually, of course, taken as its starting point um, the position attained or the final endpoint within the uh, immediately lower level. In this regard, the contestation of sovereignty on the international plane is no different. The nation state is, of course, the starting point of reference for the concept of sovereignty to be contested within international organizations. It's for this reason, in large part, that the debate, for example, about the legitimacy of the exercise by international organizations of governmental powers, the so-called democratic deficit, is largely framed by reference back to the exercise of these powers within the nation state. But this approach that the sovereignty of states is only the starting point does, doesn't, in my view, mitigate the important role of states as actors in contesting sovereignty within international organizations. The lower, so there's a distinction between the values that have been achieved through the contestation of sovereignty in the, at the nation state level, and there should be a difference in some cases between those nation state values and the values within an international organization, because the interests and motivations are different. There's that on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's the role of nation states as actors, and that's a very different function. And in my view, the lower, well, it's not just my view, in fact, I think history bears this out, that the lower level of government has historically always played an active and important role as a safeguard against the capacity of the more recently established higher level of government to establish and enforce problematic conceptions of sovereignty. It's a safeguard. This is particularly relevant in the context of global institutions where maintaining the system of national autonomy is so essential if the evils of excessive uh, centralization are to be avoided. This brings us then to the important question of values and of sovereign values. The concept of sovereignty, as I've mentioned, has always been associated with an entitlement to exercise governmental powers in the internal and external domain. But this has always been subject to sovereign values that have conditioned or constrained its exercise. Or to put it more conceptually, sovereignty possesses an important normative character. That character being um, the sovereign values that condition its exercise. An early starting point for the concept of sovereignty focused mainly on paradigms involving the foundation and application of such state or values as exclusive control by a state of its territory, non-intervention in the internal affairs of other states. Today, however, through a process of contestation, the concept in the Western liberal tradition has arguably been broadened both to include other actors and also to contain values such as legitimacy, autonomy, self-determination, freedom, accountability, security and equality that are core to a modern conception. This is not a static or exhaustive, and some may even say an accurate list. And indeed, based on what I've said earlier, it could not be. It's continually subject to contestation and change. The point is, though, that these or indeed other values do provide sovereignty with a normative character, which can be used to evaluate a state of affairs within a society, or in our case, of an international organization between societies. To go one step further, to take the argument one step further, the incorporation of values as an integral part of the concept of sovereignty allows the argument to be made that the exercise of public powers of government 
can only be considered an exercise of sovereign powers, and I use that in quotation marks, when they are in accord with sovereign values, since otherwise the exercise of public powers is something entirely distinct from the exercise of sovereignty, and it can even be considered as a violation of sovereignty. Michael Reisman makes this point nicely. This feature of sovereign values being an integral part of the concept of sovereignty is of particular importance to the exercise by organisations, international organisations of sovereign powers, which in a number of cases include the exercise of executive, legislative and judicial powers of the state. In fact, I discuss briefly some of these in my lecture on the United Nations and its contribution to international peace in this series. This does raise a potential problem, though, at one level for the internationalist, since so long as differing societies possess differing approaches to these core values of sovereignty, then a truly shared sense of sovereignty and the identification of an international organisation to exercise these sovereign powers seems at best problematic. But to reiterate, it's precisely the stimulation of this debate that is the vital and indeed unique contribution that the existence of the concept of sovereignty makes, and to take the argument again one step further, uh, without a concept of sovereignty there could be no discussion of a concept of supranational sovereignty. This process of contestation of sovereignty involves in an almost circular fashion a set of ontological decisions, decisions relating to identification. The first is ethical, deciding who we are, who is a friend, who is an enemy and who is a stranger. The other is meta-historical. Where, where do we come from? How we became friends? How we got here, where we are and where we are going in the future? The concept of sovereignty as such is inextricably intertwined with identity and history. Or put differently, the essentially contestable nature of the concept of sovereignty means that it continually generates discussion on and contributes to the formulation and identification with the concept of a community. History is replete with decisions that give identity to the we, with a capital W, as opposed to the other, with a capital O, by focusing on geographical or other perceived differences between parts of humanity, based on such factors as ethnicity, language, tribe, and even, it must be said with a degree of ironic circularity, nationality. The stimulation of ontological decisions by sovereignty poses, according to some, an inherent conflict at the core of modern conceptions of sovereignty. Jens Bartelsen, for example, in his excellent book, A Genealogy of Sovereignty, published in 1995, says in very wise words the following. Humanity, or he says man, as the hero of modernity, made the state out of conflict. But out of the state inevitably arises a new state of conflict. He says again, man in his quest for sovereignty has pushed the tragedy of his political predicament out of his hands by making the other the condition of possibility of his essential sameness within the state. From Rousseau on, early modern strategies of peace have no option left save to proceed by domestic analogy when it comes to international transformation. As Hegel remarked on the possibility of a federative solution to the problem of transcendence, even if a number of states join together as a family, this league in its, in its individuality must generate opposition and create an, an enemy. Close quotation marks from Bartelson. 
The question that I raise with you today is whether it is possible that the next stage of contestations of sovereignty may ontologically focus on the constitution of a community based on the extent to which different persons accept and apply values as opposed to differences between those persons. Do international, and do international organizations provide such a forum for the contestation and formulations of such values? Well, the way that I've asked that question, you probably ascertained that in my view they do. The very existence of international organizations performs this important ontological function since they provide a forum transcendent to the state, transcendental to the state, where conceptions of sovereignty on the international plane can be debated, contested, and this is a positive development since simply trans transposing domestic conceptions of sovereignty and their values onto the international plane is not always appropriate. And indeed on the international plane, the value may be developed more extensively than is possible at the national level. This process of, of contestation within an org international organization has causation, has inherent within it rather, causation that runs both ways between the state and international organization and vice versa. It's obvious that states and the representatives contest contestation conceptions of sovereignty within an international organization, but also this contestation on the international plane inevitably affects domestic conceptions of sovereignty. And an example of this is provided by the United Kingdom and its um, issues, legal issues relating to the relationship between the executive and Parliament, for example, in the light of its membership of the European Union. Let me now move swiftly on to my next claim, that the essentially contestable nature of sovereignty has important implications for organisations that exercise powers of government, sovereign powers. Let's consider one of the, the normative values that, um, that exists within the domestic conception of sovereignty. Uh, one of these one may argue, is accountability for the exercise of public powers of government. In most states, this has come to be regarded as being inextricably interlinked with the exercise of governmental power at the domestic level through a long and arduous process of contestation. The delegation by states of governmental powers to international organisations without the same general type of normative limitations that constrain the exercise of these powers at the national level is in my view, to dispense with, by the stroke of a pen signing a treaty, the limitations on governmental tyranny that peoples have fought hard to win within their domestic policy, polity. This is especially important since the powers that are in fact being delegated by states to international organisations include often the full range of executive, legislative and judicial powers of the state. These types of delegations without constraint also undermine the separation of powers between the executive, legislative and judicial branches of government within a state. This provides, this, this uh, change in the relationship between the separation of powers as a result of such delegations by states to international organisations at least provides a partial explanation of why the German Constitutional Court, the Bundeswasserengericht, excuse my pronunciation, the BVG, in the famous Maastricht decision, sought to ensure that the legislature, the Bundestag and the Bundesrat, exercised control over the content of the powers being delegated by Germany to the EU by giving them, the, the legis German legislature, the competence to 
specify by statute the powers being delegated and not simply to rely on the executive ratifying the treaty. The contestation between domestic arms of government uh, over conceptions of sovereignty don't cease simply because matters are taken onto the international plane. We see this also, for example, in the context of the World Trade Organization, where there are ongoing disputes between the US executive and Congress, for example, over what position the United States should take on various issues within the WTO. By allowing, in general terms, domestic public and administrative law concepts to be applied to the exercise by international organizations of governmental powers, it also allows the participation, albeit indirect, by the legislature in the process of contestation of sovereignty on the international plane. This is of crucial importance if international organizations, as an emerging additional layer of government, are to engage in a deeper and thus more meaningful contestation of sovereignty, the con contestation of sovereignty within their spheres of concern. This does, however, raise the key issue. To what extent is it appropriate to employ domestic legal concepts that constrain the exercise of public powers at the domestic level in the context of an international organisation? Well, the general applicability, and I emphasise that this was only a general applicability of such constraints to an international organisation, doesn't mean automatically that there is a transposition or transplantation of these domestic law principles to the international organization content, context. And there, there are two reasons for this. The first is when states establish an international organization, they're agreeing to be bound by certain common obligations which flow from the treaty that establishes the organization, the constituent treaty. As such, there cannot be a presumption that the treaty is to be applied in a different way to member states, depending on their domestic public or administrative law systems and the way in which the conferred power is treated under these various systems. The domestic law is of relevance, but only when there are identifiable common features of the public or administrative law systems of member states that are applicable to a particular power, since only then can a norm be considered as a general principle of law and thus a source of international law. And I'd note here the continuing relevance and importance of Hirsch Lauterpach's uh, book, Private Law Analogies in International Law. The second reason why there's not an automatic transplantation of these general domestic and public and domestic public and administrative law principles to an international organization is that the constituent treaty itself will specify certain competences and limitations which attach to the exercise of the power in question and these may be of such a nature that it's simply inappropriate to use a domestic law analogy for example in the context of the world trade organization um, jackson and crowley found that um, that the, United, that the US administrative law concept of judicial deference to agency determinations was simply inapplicable in the context of the, um, the World Trade Organization uh, when looking at the extent to which uh, uh, discretion should be afforded national government decisions by the World Trade Organization panels and appellate body. An example, however, so there, there are two situations where there is no arguable application of the domestic public and administrative law principle to the organization. What about the case where there is application? Well, in, in one of my books, The United Nations and the Development of Collective Security, I examine in some detail the domestic public law maxim delegatus potest delegare, which essentially says the delegate should not, the delegate of 
uh, public powers should not subdelegate those powers. And I examine um, what the implications of, first of all, whether or not that maxim is applicable to the United Nations Security Council. I conclude that, in fact, it is. And I then examine what the implications of that are. And a, a number of important impl implications flow from the application of that domestic public law principle to the exercise by the Security Council of its Chapter 7 powers, and in particular, the delegation by the Council of its Chapter 7 powers to member states and international organisations. And this is just one area where the formulation and application of global values is necessary so that international organisations can exercise sovereign powers with legitimacy and accountability. Thank you very much for your time.